Welcome to Regeneration Studio. My name's Katerina Jabert and this is another narrative journey into creative business ideas and how they transform individuals and communities. I'm so excited for today's episode. As it is the 10th episode, I've made it all the way to number 10 and the first time I'll be talking about martial arts with my guest and early mentor Warren Hope. But it's going to be a lot more than just that. Being able to defend yourself effectively depends on several physical attributes. For example, your fitness, strength, endurance, alertness and knowledge of defense tactics. All of these aspects play a role. But physical attributes would be useless if you did not also have the right mentality. If you allow fear to consume you in a moment of danger or stress, you would freeze up or run away and your physical attributes will not help you to overcome the situation in the best way possible. Effective self-defense and being skilled in martial arts rely as much on cultivating physical health as it does on cultivating mental health. A deeper understanding of how we respond in times of duress can help us develop the right attitude, not only in life and death situations, but also in our day-to-day -day life. My guest today, as mentioned, is Warren Ho, founder of Defence Unlimited, or WarrenHo.net, a self-defence training company in Johannesburg, South Africa. He also offers online content about being alert, fit, and ready to react in threatening situations. Welcome to the show, Warren. Uh, thank you very much, Kat, and uh, thank you for having me as a guest on your show today. You're welcome. So today we'll be discussing two topics that have affected most of us at some point in our lives, conflict management and racial discrimination. You have had an interesting journey so far, to say the least. To give our listeners an idea of who you are, imagine there's a film or a book blurb soon to be released called Defense Unlimited. Can you briefly introduce yourself in the style of a film trailer or book blurb? So I think the most, um, the most effective way to do this is to give you a brief background. And like most blockbusters, they have a sordid past, a journey to a sort of a goal, and obviously a hero's victory. Uh, and let's put it in those three simple um, formats. So the first one is I, I grew up in apartheid South Africa. So if the people, if you don't know what apartheid South Africa was, it was where uh, we call it the, the dark days of South Africa, or really was it the white days of South Africa, where uh, there was segregation, racial segregation, deliberately done to sort of control the population. I was 18 when apartheid was abolished in 1994. And um, at the time, even though I was 18, I was still kind of oblivious as to what was happening around me because I had lived in quite a sort of protected lifestyle thanks to my parents. But there were sort of inklings of these racial segregations everywhere. Only when I was in first year varsity did I start educating myself as to what was happening around me and what had happened in the past. And that's what really opened my eyes in terms of what was happening in our, in our country at the time. So fast forward 10 years later, and that's where sort of my, my idea of Defence Unlimited came about. And Defence Unlimited 
um, was sort of the brainchild after a long discussion with my mom. And uh, my mom had said to me, once I've got my degree, I should leave the country, go and seek, you know, your, your sort of your wealth elsewhere because this country was going down the drain. That was, that was her words. And the, re the reason being is obviously with the change in power and the increase in crime rate, there wasn't much security and stability in South Africa. But Defence Unlimited's whole motto was to unlock potential um, in the individual. And I felt that South Africa at the time, and we still do, needed that kind of motivation. If me, being a relatively young person, left the country, and so did a, a million other young people, then what left, what future would South Africa have? So it was my choice to stay behind and try to do something about it. And hence, Defence Unlimited was born. And since then, for the last probably decade and a bit, I've been trying to cultivate Defence Unlimited to not only unlock potential by teaching people how to effectively defend themselves, but through other means as well, whether it's through the martial arts, which teaches us very important principles of discipline, resilience, and self-confidence, but also onto a greater scale of personal development, where you take all that you've learned and create something even better for your own life, hence the whole unlocking of your own potential. But you can only do that once you, feel, once you are free from your fears and your restrictions. Part one, the struggle of unlocking your potential. I met Warren a long time ago when I started Kendo. For listeners who are not familiar with Kendo, the word translates to the way of the sword. It originated from the samurai tradition and can be described as Japanese fencing. For a couple of years, we trained at the same dojo and we competed together in European Kendo Championships and the World Champs. When I met him, however, he was working for a telecommunications company by day and spending the rest of his waking hours doing some form of martial arts. Now, Warren, you eventually decided to leave your well-paid job in the corporate world to embark on an entrepreneurial journey setting up a martial arts and defense company, Defense Unlimited or WarrenHo.net. With years worth of experience in various kinds of martial arts, your knowledge, training and skill have helped shape this journey. Can you tell us more about some of the martial arts you did and do? Which ones would you say you are most skilled in and or enjoy the most and why? Okay, so um, yes, I, I have indeed done a lot of martial arts since I was uh, eight years old, actually. And just to put it into context, that would make it over three wow. decades ago. <laughs> so that's giving my <laughs> age away. Your age. <laughs> yes, but that's the whole point, though, is that I, I started watching as many, not only Asian kids, but as many other, other kids started watching, you know, movies like Jackie Chan and Jet Li and uh, you know, all these movies where, and very traditional movies where guys be flying around from tree to tree and have these amazing powers. And that's sort of what got me sort of hooked onto the martial arts. So when I was eight, I started doing a karate, actually, uh, with a guy called Eddie Jardine, who is, I'm sure, he's quite a local legend here in South Africa. So I had done that for a few years, but it was only at varsity when I was 18, 10 years later, that I truly found what martial arts meant. And that was by doing Taekwondo with 
my Taekwondo instructor, Scott Crowder, who was at the time one of the youngest members to actually have been selected to have taken part in the, uh, as, a, as part of the British team for the Olympics back then. So he sort of installed a, a, a passion and a deep love and respect for not only Taekwondo, but for a lot of other different martial arts. And I'm quite happy to say that uh, I had practiced Taekwondo for a number of years thereafter and obtained up to a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. I have since found that I can't uh, do the splits anymore, so it's really painful to do Taekwondo. So I have sort of put that on the back burner, though I still incorporate a lot of the training and the practices from there. I can't kick to the head anymore, but I can very well kick your legs out if I have to. And that is thanks to my Taekwondo training. Over and above that, Karate and Taekwondo, I had done something called Hapkido also, which is also a Korean martial art, and um, had done up to a, a secondary degree black belt in that one too. And again, it was something which I, I enjoyed. It was wrist locks and everything else, but also because of my instructor, I decided to follow a different course of uh, martial arts, which was Hapkido. The last one that you sure, I'm sure you know of is Kendo, which I have initially very reluctant to take up because I didn't see the practicalities of running around with a sword in Bogu or in armor. And I thought all of my training up until that point had been practical, something I could use effectively in the streets. Kendo was the most impractical thing that I'd ever found. You know, you're never going to walk around in armor or with a wooden sword or a, a, a bamboo sword anyway. So my, I was quite res resistant to it initially, but over time I found that I quite enjoyed Kendo, not because of the physical fighting, but because of the depth of the philosophy and the mental training that you get from it. And that sort of stayed with me and it's endured over all these years. And I'm quite happy to say that I'm a fifth day in Kendo now, which makes it the longest uh, style that I've trained for a while. So Kendo is still the martial art that I'm very active in, but I still incorporate a lot of the previous martial arts that I've done before into my self-defense training. And not only is it um, Taekwondo and Hapkido, but to list a few others, I did things like uh, Wing Chun, a little bit of Tai Chi, uh, Eskrima, which is Filipino martial arts, Amok, which is with weapons and blades. Uh, so there was a host of, oh, Ancestina, which is a Russian martial art. Um, so there's been a host, oh, by the way, and the Krav Maga instructor. I'm also a Krav Maga instructor. So You've just trying to incorporate all these different <laughs> I have, and that's, and a lot of people have sort of said, well, you know, by doing so much, you have no focus. But I'll use exactly the same words as Bruce Lee said, you know, a punch is a punch, kick's a kick. There are different styles that show you how to kick and punch differently, but the end result is you get a blood nose if someone punches you in the face. So my, my initial journey up until this point has been to explore as many martial arts to see the different variations and styles. And... The more I do, the more I find that there are more commonalities through every single one. And if it's the effectiveness of the martial art, that makes the difference. And my self-defense training, when I teach self-defense, I teach the most effective parts from every single style. Not, and I'm not disrespecting any style at all. Each one has its merit. But we as people, we all have our different attributes and we'll attune to certain things that work better for us as an individual. That's fascinating. I didn't. I wasn't aware that your self-defense style is like a combination of all these different martial arts. Leaving a fairly comfortable, secure job to set up your own business is a risky endeavor. And to borrow your phrase, it's likely, almost certain, that many entrepreneurs struggle to unlock the potential of their business, often failing 
and having to rethink their strategy. Tell us more about your professional background. What led to your decision to exchange life in the corporate world for the rocky path of setting up your own company? Right. So I was one of the one of many kids that were led to believe that if I had a good education with a degree, I'd have a cushy job and you know retire as a corporate man with a great retirement package. And I was very well on my way there. I had graduated from this university with a decom degree in marketing and information systems and a sub-major in corporate finance and found myself in, you know sort of uh, wandering into the IT industry and when I say wandering it wasn't a conscious choice <laughs> I just sort of got my first job I started off as a systems administrator and gradually worked my way all the way up to an IT manager because the furthest thing away from what I ever wanted to be and I started managing people and then once I moved into corporate, I was a portfolio manager. And again, managing teams as big as 13, it was 14 people at one stage, a mixture of business analysts, project managers, and occasionally we had some business portfolio managers as well. So that corporate experience really taught me what I didn't like, which is managing people. And I think someone with an IT background, even though I didn't want to do IT, I found IT quite relaxing because I could do it on my own. But now all of a sudden, managing people made it so much more complicated. And not only are you trying to manage something which is predominantly ones and zeros, IT, you have this vast array of human emotions to manage as well. And I found that rather stressful. Even though I enjoyed the social interaction, I found that uh, corporate politics was a little bit too much for me. There's a lot of conniving in corporate politics and, uh, to put it lightly, butt kissing and covering your own asses, which I did not respect. And as a martial artist and the route, the, the path that I was sort of leaning onto was to become a, and be a full-time martial artist. And I found those two worlds conflicting all the time. How could I be such an integral person and try to be an upstanding person in martial arts, but have a very different persona when I'm at work. So those two conflicts in personalities were starting to get to me and it was really affecting not only my work, but vice versa, it was affecting my martial arts as well, to a point where I made a decision that, look, I can only do this so long, put on this facade for so long where I'm in a corporate environment trying to be this person that I'm not before something's going to break. And that for me was sort of a identity realization and a affirmation say listen I want to be this kind of person so that was one of the changing one of the factors that made me decide to actually embark on my entrepreneurial business mm -hmm. so would you say that uh, integrity is something that's normally lacking in the corporate world or it just depends from one company to the other I think on that side you know it's it's a bit of a gray spot mm -hmm. in terms of the company culture and the idea is the company culture you need to be you have to have a good fit with the company culture. If the company is one which is big on integrity, absolutely, you know, it's got to be a right fit for you. However, you, if you go into business, and unfortunately, I know a few where, let's take some attorneys, for instance, if you have to represent someone who you know is fundamentally bad or had committed a crime, yet you still have to do your job mm -hmm. as an attorney representing this person, could you do it with full conviction still, knowing that in the back of your mind, uh, your gut feeling, whatever you call it, that this person is guilty as hell, you would not be able to. So there's, there's that conflict and that stress. So it depends on the company and the sort of the job that it entails. For me at the time, I felt that my personality, my sort of the character I wanted to 
buildup wasn't aligned with what I was experiencing at, at my work. Mm-hmm. I see. In the book, The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing by author Eric Snick states that, and I quote, if you cannot be the first in your category, you need to set up a new category. This is under the law of category. It implies that it's more important to create something that's new when deciding what your business is going to offer and owning that category that you've created, making sure that you strive to be the best in it, then trying to slot into something that exists already and competing with the competition, trying to beat the competition. In other words, setting yourself apart. Now, you've given us a little bit of an explanation about uh, what Defense Unlimited does. How would you say it applies to your company in South Africa? How are you setting yourself apart through the services that you offer? So, great question and uh, very relevant because I actually had been working with my sales mentors and coaches on this for a long time. The whole idea is what makes me unique? Why would people come to me as a business, as a person, to do their self-defense training? Mm-hmm. So one of the things is I do want to debunk a lot of the myths surrounding self-defense and you, you sort of said it in your initial um, your initial introduction of me, it's physical and mental, which is absolutely right. But a lot of companies only focus on the physical aspect of self-defense and I call it the kicking and punching, you know, all the guns and the knives. They don't look at very much the mental aspect. Um, or they sort of think that the mental aspect will come with the training. But a big component which they miss also is the whole attitude development, developing the right kind of attitude towards self-defense. Now, you had also mentioned that without the right kind of attitude, you know, irrespective as to what training, physical training or mental training you've had, all of that will be for naught if you don't have the right attitude towards the situation. And that for me boils down to asking the right questions. And I I have a which makes me very um, different is I ask a very fundamental question or I call it the primary question. What are you willing to fight down and kill for? By answering that, you sort of eliminate 90% of the situations where you won't get into a situation where you won't need to take any self-defense um, action. If you're clear as to what are you willing to fight, die and kill for, it will keep you out of harm's way for the majority of the time. It's only those cases where you said, you look, this is something I want to fight for, this is something we're willing to die for, and this is something we're willing to kill for, then do you have to engage in a self-defense manner. And again, self-defense isn't only physical. I, I teach a whole uh, array of other responses. Fighting is one of them. Other people are familiar with the other one, which is fight or flight, so they're able to run. There's a third one, which is also to freeze, but a conscious choice to freeze, whether you have to comply, uh, you have a gun to head, um, your family's been held under duress, you have to freeze and comply. And there's another two which are called flip out and adapt, which um, I won't go into too much detail and bore you, but the idea is flipping out isn't ah, flip out, okay? <laughs> the idea is to flip out using a PPT or personal protection tool like pepper spray and using it as a psychological barrier. So listen, I've got pepper spray, get back. That on its own is a strategy. And the last one, which I call is a higher level strategy, adapt, is what I call which is exactly what a lot of people would think about. Number one, try to avoid it. Number two, if you can't avoid it, dodge it. Number three, arbitrate or negotiate your way out of there. Number four, which is to posture, making yourself bigger or smaller. And the last one, which is the T of the depth strategy, is to take, if all else fails, 
take some other kind of action, fight, flight, flip out, or freeze. So there's a whole circle of reactions which you can do in self-defense situation, whereas most schools only teach you one, <laughs> to fight. And that's where I like to draw a line and say, that's what makes me different. I mm -hmm. teach a full array of reactions. Yes, and uh, before we move on to part two, would you say that this kind of philosophy that you offer through your self-defense training is something that's applicable not only to a country perhaps where the crime rate is high, but also to other countries and people in general just living their lives? Absolutely. So the reaction is always contextual to which country you're in, number one, because I talk about three awarenesses. The greatest awareness is macro awareness, understanding what is the situation around your country. Okay. But absolutely in every single country, there is one crime or the other. And the more you know about what's happening in your country, the better and more prepared you can be for it. So self-defense training is as fundamental as what Maslow used to call your, your basic physiological needs. It's mm -hmm. as important as food, air, reproduction, shelter, all right? Being safe, being, having that feeling of safety is just as important. Think of the hierarchy of needs. At the very bottom are these primary needs, which you can, if it's not met, all the upper stuff which is created above those pyramids can't be met. Safety falls in there. If someone threatens your safety, you cannot feel the sense of belonging. Um, your self-esteem and the, the highest point of self-actualization and realizing if you, your pyramid is the foundation is not stable so having the safety irrespective of which country you're in is a vitally important component of you as a person great part two what am i willing to fight die and kill for and why In your ebook, 120 Practical Self-Defense Tips, you explain that the first thing you ask self-defense course participants, and you've mentioned this uh, just now, is what am I willing to fight, die and kill for and why? You've touched on it already, but why would you say this is an important question for people learning self-defense? Can you maybe just go over that one more time? And how does this translate to our everyday lives so maybe give an example sure okay so the question is broken up and again i call it the primary question the first one talks about what are you willing to fight for all right so think about it it can be something it can be someone it can be some belief that you believe in and let's use you cat would you fight against discrimination yes and let's call discrimination in a broad a contextual way right mm -hmm. All right, you said yes. So do you drive? Yes. <laughs> okay, and have you ever been subjected to road rage? No. Either victim as a perpetrator or as being Definitely as a victim. Road rage. Okay. Definitely. Right, so that is something which I, can, I think anyone who drives can relate to. Road rage is a prime example, whether you're on, being, whether you're on the receiving side or the giving side. Did the person consciously think about when I drive when I'm driving down this road and someone cuts in front of me, is this something I'm willing to fight for? Yet at that very moment, they subconsciously made a choice that someone cut me off and I'm going to curse at them, chase them down the road, and when I catch them, I have no idea what I'm going to do with them. Mm -hmm. That happens so often that you hear of these cases of road rage where it turns out nasty, someone gets killed, someone gets injured, and someone goes to jail. Have you, I'm sure you've read of cases like that. Yeah. 
that is a prime example of where they didn't think about the primary question of what am I willing to fight for? Mm -hmm. Because if they had made a conscious decision before the time to say, is this, is someone cutting in front of me such a such an ordeal that I will be willing to fight for it? Most rational people at this very moment, when they're sitting down listening to you, listening to the show, will say, no, it's not rational. Yet they make an emotional decision at the time because your emotions kick in. Mm -hmm. And this is what the primary question pulls out of you. When you're in a logical, calm state of mind, think, clearly think of what is it that you're willing to fight, die, and kill for. Road rage is not one of them. Yet we see so many cases of this happening on the roads. That's the first one. The next one is, what am I willing to die for? And it's the same thing. Would you be willing to die for if something, someone or some belief? So we, you and I are both just said, now we, we would fight against discrimination, correct? You know, I'm, and I'm, I'm a, because I grew up in a part that I would definitely fight against racism. But would I be willing to sacrifice my life for racism or discrimination? Yes. And I ask you the same question. Would you be willing to sacrifice your life with? So, again, this is a, absolutely. So and you have to think more about extreme. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yet, let's think of Nelson Mandela and let's think about Encontro Cisbe, which was the sort of the military arm. They would be willing to die for mm -hmm. their belief. Mandela would see, he actually went on one of his speeches, said he would die for the belief that there would be a free and fair South Africa one day. It's quite well recorded. So he was a man who stood by his conviction, his belief that, yes, I would die for this. All right. So therefore, you've got to have some kind of conviction that you're willing to die for. I, would, I could say now with 100% with certainty, I would die for my son. My son is five years old. And up until the point that I was a parent, this was very theoretical to me. But he is the one person that I would absolutely put my life in harm's way to protect him. All right. I think yeah. most parents would actually say that. All right. Yes, definitely. And that's going to be a conscious choice because, trust me, you only have one choice of dying. <laughs> you're dead. There's nothing else you can do. So you have to make sure that you're willing to sacrifice that. Should people decide this beforehand? Does this help them in maybe preventing situations or kind of preparing them to react in any kind of yes. dangerous situation? Absolutely. So self-defense training there's two components. The one is preparation and the one is emergency, all right? Everything we're doing now is preparation work. It's like going for fire training. You learn how to use a fire hydrant, how to put out a fire, what kind of fire, is it oil-based, is it a carbon-based kind of fire, right? You learn what kind of fire so that should the fire happen, you know what to do. It's the same for self-defense, is you give everything possible, as much thought and training as possible up front, should the event happen, you have all the training that you can apply to it. Mm -hmm. Most people aren't prepared for the emergency situation and they just think, oh, it will naturally come to me at the time. But this, aunt, this question I've just asked you now, what are you willing to fight down and kill for? If you don't make the conscious choices beforehand, you'll make a illogical, emotional decision at the time, which mm -hmm. could be the wrong decision that could either end up killing you, hurting you, maiming you, or worse still, hurting someone that you, you love. And that's that's the point I'm trying to prove with self-defense training. The the last part is the most important part, and uh, which is what am I willing to kill for? All mm -hmm. right. Now most people have very high morals, I'd like to think, and they say they won't kill for X, Y, and Z. But should you have to ever take a human's life, another human's life, is there anyone, anything, or any belief that you would? 
and what are the circumstances. Those have to be clearly defined. So should you ever be faced with that kind of a decision, you have them up here in the back of your head saying, yes, this is a situation. I can tell you now, my wife, my son, my mom, my dad, and my sister, that's it, five people, all right? Those are the people that I'd be willing to kill for, all right? So the idea is by having that, that list in my mind, it takes away a lot of the thinking when I need to think about that, that I don't have to worry about the consequences then. Yes, it's fascinating because that's, I suppose, the point of the self-defense training is for you to force you to make these decisions before, because in the moment, you don't actually have time to debate right. morals. That's right. Yes. So an understanding of crime mentality is an aspect of what you teach participants in your workshops as well. And we have touched on the question of an, is self-defense as important in countries with lower crime rates? Why would you say that anyone, regardless of nationality, gender, race, occupation, geography, can find some use in self-defense training? I've recently discovered, and this is a sad reality, is the human capacity to hate by stereotype, stereotype and just be generally negative is boundless. And that is a, a flaw. It, perhaps it's not a flaw, perhaps it is uniquely human, is that every single human is capable of, of that level of bigotry, hatred, and violence. So just because a country doesn't have a high crime rate doesn't mean that there aren't people in that country that can do such things. The very fact that we have a whole host of TV series that are based on, you know, criminal behavior and you know there's uh, there's every single kind of genre of, of tv show that you can think of but the fact is that you the human mind has thought of that and if you're a firm believer of mind power if you can think it you can do it and that's why i say the human ability to be such what well, let's call despicable creatures we have the capacity irrespective as to which country or what gender or race or gender that you might have so yes it's applicable for everyone because you never know I'm not trying to make you paranoid. You never know who is capable of doing what. So martial arts originated from combat traditions related to various applications. Case in point, self-defense. That's one, military applications, law enforcement, and so on. Normally, it's associated with Eastern culture or a blend of East and West. However, for each martial art, there is a clear philosophy and application, as mentioned. How would you say martial arts are applicable to modern day society in general? Now, you've briefly spoken about kendo not being very applicable, for example. But sure. is, there, is it just a sport? Is it a way to keep fit, to relieve stress? Or is there something more to it, even something like kendo? Can it make a difference in our lives? Absolutely. And, and don't get me wrong, I absolutely love kendo because it's so dynamic. It can, it can fit in every aspect of your life, you know, both physical, mental, spiritual and emotional. What I did say is kendo can't be practically used as a self-defense mm -hmm. martial art. Okay. There are some martial arts that are very geared towards self-defense as a self-defense focus. Um, let's take Krav Maga, for instance. That is purely self-defense training. All right? it, it borrows a lot of techniques, but it's designed as a martial art so that you can kick ass. <laughs> That's the whole point and defend yeah. yourself. Whereas the whole idea behind kendo is about personal development. There is a different ethos behind kendo. As I'm sure you know, you know, the whole ethos of kendo is 
personal development through yes. um, the use of the sword. So, but each martial art does offer you those three aspects, whether it's physical, mental, or spiritual. It just depends on how deep you want to get into it. So I use a triangle as an example. And everybody in martial arts always have this common analogy of unifying body, mind, and spirit. Every martial art has that kind of idea is that when you get to a point, you can just think, you know, that just happens, you know, it just happens. So, but before you can get to that stage, you need to channel, you need to uh, train the body to get to that point, hence the whole body first. You can't get to the mental and spiritual side initially because your body needs to adapt to that style or being able to handle impact or be able to do a specific move, like a men cut. It's mm -hmm. a very unusual cut, but until you can actually get to that high level, you need to master the physical aspect of it first. Only then are you able to apply the mental aspect and the spiritual and emotional side. The whole point of doing that is you can do it effortlessly without even thinking about it, and it just happens. Every martial art strives to have that, yet it still follows the same triangle of body, mind, body first, mind, and then it becomes spirit. So there's the commonality with every single martial art. Yes, and this can uh, potentially influence your life on a daily basis, not just, say, when you do the martial art per se, but when you do other activities, go to work, interact with people and so forth. Absolutely. And I think that's, um, I think Kendo taught me that the most is that what, and I often use this as an analogy, you know, what we do in the dojo is just a microcosm of what happens in the real world. You know, the, the fears and the stuff that you face in Kendo, you know, trying to mold your body and your mind and your spirit in Kendo can be applied outside to the outside world as well. You know, it may not be a physical confrontation that you have with another person where you're fighting with them, yet you could have a verbal confrontation, yet still experience the same kind of, of emotions, you know, the anger, the fear, the frustration of being able to get your idea across. But then Kendo gives you an outlet to be able to also learn how to manage it so that when you take it into the boardroom, you can manage it in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very true. Well, talking about Kendo, your contribution to the national and international kendo community is noteworthy. You have Thank acted you. as president of the South African Kendo Federation, organized many international seminars in your country, and you are currently running virtual kendo training sessions, inviting international senseis like Seven Dan Finnish Sensei Marcus Frey to host these sessions. Now, kendo is a passion of mine and a passion of yours and i believe cultivating the mentality of an athlete or martial artist can be a life-changing experience for anyone it's an amazing martial art and sport and it okay. actually did change my life and it might have done yours as well Warren. i mm -hmm. started doing kendo as a teenager and back then i was insecure terribly shy and not physically fit at all i hardly did any sport but I set myself a goal when I started kendo. I wanted to put women on the national map for kendo so that we can have a ladies team, which we didn't at the time, to represent the country internationally. So with almost stupid determination, dedication and training, and the support, of course, of other excellent women kendoka in the country, we eventually got to the point where the federation sent ladies teams to international competitions on a regular basis now back to you warren 
what would you say it takes to distinguish yourself from other athletes? If anybody ever wants to distinguish themselves is just to keep training. <laughs> and it sounds as simple as that, but it's the hardest thing to do. And especially if you're injured, you're down and out in your, you know, your sort of self-esteem is low, you have the wrong circumstances, you don't have a dojo to trading, uh, or your dojo's been locked down, or you're stuck at home. The whole point of what differentiates a good martial artist from just an average martial artist is the person that continues training. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to, to sort of judge anyone, but especially during this time of the coronavirus, where people are locked down, they can't go to a dojo. Martial arts doesn't just happen in a dojo. If you choose to be, choose it to be your lifestyle, you should be doing it every day, whether it's in your backyard, whether you're reading, whether you're mentally watching or doing something. So it can't just be a dojo activity. It's got to be an activity that you're doing all the time. So that's what I think differentiates me as being a, a good martial artist, a, a little bit better martial artist than most. Let me rephrase that. Yeah. Just one last question before we move on. So that you mentioned that the, it's the consistency of the training and the persistence as well yes. that kind of sets one athlete apart from another. How does this mentality influence the way you run your company? Okay, so absolutely. So that is such a good question because I think, if anything, I, I use a lot of the, the lessons I learned from martial arts in running my business. Integrity is one of them. You know, what you say is what you do. If you promise to deliver at a certain time, you have to do it. And that's good business practice, correct? It's the same for training. If you say you're going to be there, you've got to be there. You're going to be doing whatever it is that you do, make a commitment to the sensei or to the dojo, you've got to do it. And it's not a matter of ego. It's a matter of, am I being integral to myself? So that's, that's the first thing. Um, so the other pillar that I talk about is uh, discipline. And that's where, you know, having discipline and routine, doing things over and over again, <laughs> even when you don't want to, that's running a business. You know, whether you have to follow up on a customer, whether you have to do the marketing, whether you, you know, you're just doing follow-up calls and checking on your customers. That's the discipline that you need to incorporate in running a small business, especially. You have to be that one-man show that does it. You are the face of your company, as well as the person that builds them, as well as the person that delivers. You have to have that discipline to be able to do that. The next one for martial arts as well is resilience. If you get knocked down, you've got to get up and keep fighting. You know, in a business and you know, I've had to grow a thick skin in business. The number of times that people have said, no, go away. I don't want to hear from you again. It becomes quite demoralizing. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for the martial arts that teaches you how to build that kind of resistance, I would probably be out of business. So you have to have a bit of resilience. And yes, people are going to say no, but you know what? There's going to be 10 other people that say yes to you. You just got to find them. But you got to have that resilience to get mm -hmm. back up and try in the third part, which you already touched on, it gives you self-confidence. So being able to face someone in full armor with a sword willing to hit you, yet you can still go for it, gives you the confidence to be able to still go for it. All right? Mm -hmm. Business is the same. If you have no confidence in yourself, how can you possibly get your business off the ground? You've got to have the confidence to say, listen, I'm going to try something risky and go for it. And provided your goal and your, your goal is clear, you'll make a way. 
All right, and your it will rely on your confidence to to boost you to get there. Nothing else is going to get you there other than your own self confidence to get started and to get moving, and to stay moving. That's the resilience part. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are three very important factors in running a business. Absolutely. Part three: self defense as a tool to educate, empower, and engage. How do you aim to educate, empower, and engage your clients? And how do you aim to do this within your community? Okay, so a tough question. Uh, I think the educate, because there's so much noise out there, you know, we, we all try to be different and put some kind of value content out there. So the way I'm doing it is I do a lot of, I do some um, free content where I, I offer advice via my Instagram or Facebook posts where I give little tidbits on, on self-defense. That's the educate part. The empowerment part comes in when they can start coming to my workshops and sort of employing or using those techniques and empowering themselves with not only the knowledge, but with the right skills. The, that for me is the next phase where they've taken the knowledge and being able to incorporate it into their daily lives. And it could be something as basic as being aware, understanding what are the crime stats in your country, where are your hijacking hotspots or is as in the UK, where are the hotspots for knife standings? Because knife standings mm -hmm. are one of the predominant um, sort of crimes in the UK. Mm -hmm. What should you avoid? What are the telltale signs? How do you tell that someone's holding a blade? What is the kind of wording that they use when they try to pick a fight with you? Right? These are all the kind of things that one can be made aware of, use that knowledge to empower themselves. And the last part, which is to engage. Engagement takes a little bit longer. And there I would encourage them for either prolonged training or enroll themselves in some kind of martial arts training. Their correct martial arts training. The engagement only comes with prolonged training once you can understand what are you capable of. Once you understand what you're capable of and being able to grow from that, that's when you unlock your potential. Only if you know where you are and what you're capable of doing, do you know where to start pushing the limits. Once you know what you're capable of doing, you push a little bit more. And that's when growth happens. It's going to be uncomfortable. But if you want to live a full life, that's where the growth happens. Some of us might be under the impression that we are fairly secure and there is no need to worry about our personal safety. So we might ask the question, do we need this kind of education, this kind of empowering, this kind of engagement um, with self-defense knowledge? However, there are a number of situations where we might need to defend ourselves regardless. A very useful tip for anyone, anywhere, listed in your ebook that's available from your website and full details will be posted in the show notes, is you only have control over your own actions, not those of others. Learn to master your actions and you're almost there in terms of self-protection. Now, I believe anyone can actually apply this to their lives. Thinking about our current situation, and once again, this is affecting the whole world, with COVID-19 virus and lockdown and the increased levels of stress, uncertainty, what would your top three recommendations be for self-defense at the moment? And thinking specifically, it depends on us and how we react in a situation. The, the key word is being empathetic, all right? Understand that during this period and when people are fearful in general, whether it's crime or whether it's COVID-19, 
there are two things that fear, that sort of um, fuel this. Number one, it's fear of the unknown. And number two is just ignorance of what's out there. So understand and being empathetic that maybe they're fearful. You know, I'm Asian, <laughs> if you haven't noticed that. And there is already a stereotyping that, hey, he's Asian, he might have the virus because he came from China type thing. There's already that, and I understand that some people have this fear, but as soon as I open my mouth, hey, look, I'm, I'm as normal like any other person, so relax. Being able to understand where they're coming from, that fear. And then the second part is it's just ignorance. I educate listen. <laughs> I haven't been to China in the last four years. I'm very much born in South Africa, so it's okay. And, and I'm using a very superficial um, sort of example, but understanding where people's fears are coming from and you know they might be coming from a very misinformed or ignorant kind of foundation trying to help them through that is the best way just being empathetic towards other people that will help you and me prevent you from lashing out because again those are emotional reactions lashing out means i didn't think about it. is this something i'm willing to fight down kill for i'm not but at the same time i'm not going to put up this i am going to try to ease your fear and try to educate you that there's nothing to be fearful about. That's probably the the best I can I can recommend for now. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, as far as I understand, you are a respected member of the Chinese community in South Africa, and you do feel strongly about racial issues in society, as you've mentioned. Now, following the virus outbreak, there have been incidents of racism online, insults, and even physical assaults. Can you perhaps just briefly talk a little bit about what fuels these irrational feelings of fear and even hate of another race? How can we combat these feelings and help others who might be victims or even people who, who have this fear and hate and, and take it out on other people? Yeah, look, okay, so a very deep question, and unfortunately, and I mentioned it before, you know, I think human nature as a whole has this ability to hate, and it, it wants to hate all the time, you know, and it wants to blame some, someone or something all the time. But looking at the current situation, and I, I think China did no favors on itself by not being as transparent as it should have been. A lot of people and a lot of news reports and social media started fueling this whole idea that the, the virus came from China. It was sort of um, deliberately let loose by China along, you know, to the world. So those kind of reports and stereotyping sort of has caused a lot of bigotry and racial abuse towards Asian people. And when I say Asian people, because unfortunately it's not just Chinese people that get sort of caught in this uh, sort of bigotry. It's anyone that has a yellow tinge to their skin, whether it's Japanese, Korean, Philippine people, even people of mixed races, Eurasians, get the same kind of brunt and discrimination. So it has sort of brought out the worst in people. And again, it's because of the fear and the ignorance that they have. They fear of the virus, what it can do, what it is doing to them and the economy. And they're ignorant in terms of what is the real issues that are the, it's not the virus that, that is the issue. It's the, under, the underlying fundamental racism and bigotry that they have mm-hmm. so that the best advice again i can say to them is just try to avoid it you know to sort of let the let the let the storm die down um don't aggravate it and i think this is for me i need to take my own advice i think i i get to a point where i start lashing out on social media and i sh- no, i shouldn't and i start saying listen not all chinese people eat bats 
not all Chinese people eat exotic foods, okay? You can't blame everything on China. And then all of a sudden, I get this huge emotional, uh, this huge sort of feedback and backlash. Mm-hmm. And I just go, oh, no, why even bother? Mm-hmm. The idea is people are frustrated and angry at the moment. Uh, I can't offer anything more than we can only be accountable for our own actions. So yeah. be, be conscious of what you do and put out there. Yes, that's very true. And don't buy into the crowd mentality. Think for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And use mm-hmm. different sources. You know, there are so much, there's so much noise out there. And if worst case scenario is just switch off, you know, just take some time, use this time to relax and reflect on everything else. Yes. True. Now, just to finish up the show, uh, lastly, your company's motto is unlocking potential to live a fully engaged life through effective self-defense training. Thinking again of everything you've said, your personal and professional journey, would you say that the move away from an unfulfilling job to pursue something you are passionate about helps you live a fully engaged life now? And in what way would you say that you have unlocked your potential through that decision? Um, so two things. Number one is I think I'm still on my journey to unlocking my potential. Mm-hmm. Um, what a lot of people, and I, I don't want to put the wrong message out there, but passion is one of them. But if it's, if it's a passion that can't sustain you, you've got to be very careful as to how long you want to do it. If I love doing something but it doesn't pay me, I can't feed myself or my family, I'm going to be very depressed and I won't be able to unlock my, my potential. Remember those hierarchy of um, Maslow's? That bottom layer still needs to be fulfilled. Uh, food and shelter have to still be accounted for. So I've sort of learned a, a different philosophy, which is called Ikigai, which is in Japanese. And it talks about passion as one of them, but it also talks about something where you can make a profit, teach something which is which I, which I love, okay? So passion is the one. The second part is being able to do or be good at it, which is, again, martial arts. And the third thing is you've got to be able to teach a profit, something that someone is willing to give you money for. Mm-hmm. So that, that sort of, that word links all three circles, the passion, the profit, and where I'm personally good at, that little bit is where we should be aiming for, not just passion. Mm-hmm. So once I get that right, I'm still on my route my journey there, then I think I'm a, I've unlocked my potential to say, yes, the thing that I'm doing, I absolutely love what I'm doing, I'm good at it, and I can actually make a living out of it, then I would have unlocked my potential. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Warren. You're welcome. And then just thank you again for joining me today. Before we go, I have a few quick questions to round up the show. First question. What sure. is the most recent film series you watched or podcast you listened to or book you read? Okay, so the re- most recent book I'm reading actually is called Dad, mm-hmm. right? And it's Hard to Be the Father Your Children Need by a guy called Craig Wilkinson, a local South African author. And a very good book, probably one of the best books I've, re- I've read about being a father specifically because it addresses what we call the masculine wounding. All males, you know, they are wounded where they were, they were children intentionally or unintentionally. And those wounds get carried over to our children. So the idea is to sort of weed through those wounds so that I don't wound my son as well. So it's a really good book. So that's the book I'm reading, Dad. Interesting. What is your number one tip to help us cope during this time? 
exercise and train. Okay. As I often say to my students in my kinder class, is that if anything, the discipline is more is required now more than ever. Training is the only sane thing that we can, you know, during this insane time. It's the only thing that keeps us sane. So yeah, if you can, and by the way, you know, from a scientific perspective, it gets the the dopamine levels up, mm-hmm. and you know, it just gets your body in your, into a nice healthy state. So please exercise and do train something. Tell us about the biggest challenge you have overcome in your life. Ooh, okay. Um, the biggest challenge. Ooh, okay. That's a. I should have given more thought on this one because there are a lot of challenges. But I, I think the biggest, the most recent one that I had, and I'll say recent, back in 2017, I, I snapped a tendon in my leg. And that effectively put me out of training for a year. Now, I had just said that training is essential, right? I could not train for a year. I put on 10 kilos. I was depressed as hell, had to go to therapy sessions because I was going to kill someone, notably me. And that was probably the most challenging time in my life. But it was also the most, I was able to self-reflect a lot because it really did show me who the people were that I could rely on. And it was quite surprising who I could and who I couldn't. So that was challenging and quite heartbreaking even to a point. How do you overcome that challenge? If you have to say, mention one thing that helped you overcome that period in your life. Having a supportive family, I think, or a loved one that you can lean on. So in this case, it would be my family. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Mm-hmm. What is the first place, country, or country, that you will mm-hmm. visit when this is over? Oh, wow. Sure. How do you choose so many, hey? Uh, so my wife and I have decided uh, we're going to celebrate our 10-year anniversary in Japan. We, we had decided this really in year one, and that happens to be next year. So next year will be our visit to Japan for our 10-year anniversary. If someone wanted advice on setting up their own business in martial arts or self-defense, or if someone just wanted to start martial arts, mm-hmm. what would you tell them? Well, it's two different things. If you want to set up a business, I think you need to have uh, the right mindset and the right resources for what you want to do. Uh, that is, I think, is even harder than starting martial arts. I think martial arts, um, provided you find a good teacher, it's, it's relatively easy. You do need a guide initially. But then once you get going, you need to find your own sort of client to get you going. But both, I think both martial arts and business, you need to find the right coaches, the right senseis to get you started on the right path. And thereafter, like riding a bike, once you've got the momentum, you can sort of carry it on your own. Thank you once again. If you would like to find out more about Defence Unlimited, or if you have a general interest in either martial arts, self-defence, or looking for some great tips on being able to handle conflict, visit their website at warrenho.net. You can also find them on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at warrenhoen. All links will be provided in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening to the show. This was the 10th episode and it has been an incredible journey so far. If you have been following my journey from episode one up until now, I would like to thank you again Your support means so much to me. And above all, I love sharing 
these inspirational stories with you. I know that times are stressful, even if we're at home, at the shop or outside taking some exercise. With the constantly changing regulations and uncertainty, we might feel on edge. For many women and children, domestic abuse is unfortunately now a reality more than ever, with no one to turn to. Knowing how to avoid it, any kind of conflict, and handle it in the best way possible is a life skill you can use now as much as later on. The beauty of it is, it's not only a physical reaction, but a mentality too. A mentality that leads to increased confidence, resilience and discipline, as explained in Warren's book. This mentality can help you overcome fears, fear of leaving a toxic relationship, fear of leaving a soul-destroying job, fear of reconnecting with a relative you haven't spoken to in years. By overcoming fear, you can lead a more fulfilling life and hopefully unlock your potential too. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this narrative journey, please subscribe and kindly spread the word by leaving me a review on Apple or Google Podcasts or Spotify, by sharing the podcast episode and giving me a thumbs up on social media. I can reach as many people as possible and thereby reach the right people, the ones who might find it beneficial and perhaps even life-changing. Join me next time for more narrative journeys into creative business ideas.